Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. If you're using those black Bibles in the seats around you, that's page 825. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 to 28 is the text for which we will give our attention to this morning. As you're turning there, I used to live in Washington, D.C. I grew up just outside of the city, and then for three years, my wife and I and our kids, we lived right in the heart of D.C., a block or so from the nation's capital. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C., it will be uh, very familiar to you to know that as you walk around, as you drive around, or if you've ever looked at pictures of the city, there's monuments and statues everywhere. And so it's sometimes one of those thoughts that come across your mind when you see all these monuments and statues. You know, I wonder what it takes to get a statue or memorial. Like, how good do you have to be? How great of a person do you have to be to get yourself a statue or something memorialized of you in Washington, D.C.? For example, some of you may not know this man, but this is Arland D. Williams. Um, Anybody ever heard of him before? Yeah, that's what I thought. That was nobody. Uh, He was born in 1935 here in Illinois, and on March 13th, 1985, the 14th Street Bridge over the Potomac River in Washington, D.C. was memorialized and renamed the Arlen D. Williams Memorial Bridge. So there's a nice shot of it. And what I like about this picture is that you've got the bridge, that's the Arlen D. Williams Bridge, And then you've got the Jefferson Memorial, and then behind it you've got the Washington Memorial. And this picture is great because you all know probably who Thomas Jefferson is, and it's like, oh, that makes sense. There's a big monument and statue of him. And then Washington, George Washington, uh, in the shadows behind that. And so what about Arlen D. Williams, and why haven't any of you heard of him? Uh, why did the bridge get renamed after him? Was it because he was a great banker? Because that's what he did as a profession. He wasn't a president. So never served in politics or held an office. Uh, His family life wasn't the best as far as I have read and heard. Uh, He did serve two years in the military, but he stayed stateside and did nothing of great importance there. So why did... In 1985, a bridge get renamed and memorialized for Arlen D. Williams. Well, this is one of those sermons where you just have to wait till the end. But I'll give you a hint. It's because he went down. His name was honored and lifted up because he went down. And it's a perfect illustration of our big idea for today. Here's the big idea. The way up in God's kingdom is down. If you'd like to become great, and there's nothing wrong with that ambition to want to be great, you must know how to become great. And in God's kingdom, the greatest people are the people who go down. I want you to see that in our passage of scripture In Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 28. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles 
to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Did you see the big idea? The way up in God's kingdom is down. Let's take that sentence and repeat it throughout our outline. Here's your outline. The way up, that's point one, or section one, outline part one. The way up. Part two, in God's kingdom. Part three, is down. First, the way up. Let's look at verses 17, 18, and 19 again, and I want you to notice in that first paragraph that it says that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem with his 12 disciples. He takes them aside and he says to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. There's a couple things that I think are worth noticing. One of them is that the phrase used is that they're going on the way, And it could be that that's just information saying they're headed on their way. Very basic directional geographical information. Or, because of the timing of when this was written, it's like saying the word Christian when you use the phrase the way. Hodos is the Greek word, and it's the phrase used for Christians in the early church. They weren't called Christians right away. For a long time, Christians were called the way. In fact, listen to this verse. This is Acts chapter 9, and it says that Saul was breathing out threats and murder against the Lord's disciples. So there's a guy who's a Jew, and he doesn't like Christians, and so he's trying to kill them. And it says that he went to the high priest of the Jewish faith, and he asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women belonging to the way. Hodath. It's a phrase used throughout the New Testament to describe the Lord's disciples. To be a follower of Jesus is to be a part of the way. So I'm not sure if Matthew, as he's writing this, is dropping us little like 
gems or a hint here to say he's referring to the disciples as they're going the way to Jerusalem. But here's what we do know. They're going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, which is an ascent up. Literally, Jerusalem was high in elevation. It was a high climb up the mountains. So very literally, they were going up. But that literal fact is also an extremely important theological point. Jerusalem was the high place. It was the house of God. It was the mountaintop of the early book of Genesis where God and man dwell together. The early place where the heaven is as close to the mountains and heaven and earth overlap. Jerusalem was an ascent into the presence of the Lord. And in fact, pilgrims who were scattered all around the region every year would make this pilgrimage and they would ascend up and they would sing psalms. And if you read them, they're from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 and they're called the Ascent Psalms as they're ascending up to Jerusalem to be in the presence of God for Passover. And as we keep reading in Matthew's gospel, we know that Passover is right around the corner. And we know that he is headed up to Jerusalem. It is an ascent, both literally and theologically. Jerusalem, the city of the great king, the king Yahweh, the capital city of David's kingdom, the city where the temple and palace of Solomon was built. Jerusalem is going up. Therefore, I suggest this introduction to our passage of Scripture begs a very important question. What is the way? up. What is the way of ascent? What is the path to the kingdom? Or what is the path to the throne? That's what I believe this passage is trying to teach us, because the answer Jesus gives is a cross. See, we are going up to Jerusalem And the Son of Man, the Daniel 7 reference to the Son of Man, the one who will be enthroned on the right hand of the throne of God, he will be delivered over to chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and then he will be raised on the third day. That's the way up. The way up to Jerusalem is a way up to a cross. In fact, in John's gospel, he does a very good job of making the enthronement or the ascension up, the first step being the raising up of Jesus on the cross. That's the way to ascend. That's the way up. My kids and I have been watching, if any of you have been watching, The Mandalorian. And if you have, you'll be familiar with this little phrase. These men in this Star Wars show, they say, This is the way. And they repeat that to each other again and again throughout the episodes. This is the way. And they're talking about their way of life, their way of being, their code of conduct for this guild that they're in of bounty hunters and whatever else they're doing. Again, Star Wars. But here's the point. This is the way. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. He takes them aside and he says, we're heading the way up. We're ascending. This is going to be the way. So what does it mean for you and I to think about ascending and moving up? Just pause at this point right here. 
Isn't this what we want? Isn't this what you want fundamentally deep down in our hearts? You want to ascend. You want to go up. You want to climb the ladder. What does that mean? It doesn't mean to climb an actual physical ladder. In the same way that going up to Jerusalem is not so much about the ascent up a literal mountain as it is ascending to the heights of God. Climbing the ladder in your life. Is it through your education? Through your career pursuits? Through your New Year's resolutions to have greater health and fitness? Oh, this is the way for me to ascend to greater moral excellence or power or position or feel good about myself. For how many people is that your way? What you're doing with your life, with your education, your career pursuits, health and fitness or beauty, this is the way up in society. To ascend up is to have higher status or position, to be a place of privilege. So Jesus gives a very different way up. Are you getting it? Do you get that this is the way? Are you sure? Some of you might be thinking, yeah, I think I got that. Do you really? Can we tell by your life? Because we're about to read a story where people who are very close to Jesus know him quite well, have lived with him, have seen him, have seen him do miracles. They didn't get it. They did not get that this is the way in God's kingdom. This is the way up in God's kingdom. Let's keep reading. In verse 20, it says that just after Jesus took the disciples aside, shortly after then, the mother of the son of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and if you know, her sons are James and John. So we've got James and John and their mama. And this is one of those parts of the text that I am kind of puzzled by. What's she doing there? Now, it could be that she was just there all along and that we're being told James and John have their mom with them because they really never left their mom. They just brought her along. And they've never really left their old way. And they're still stuck in mom's way of thinking. That could be one clue. Or it could just be that these boys had something they wanted to ask Jesus, and they said, Mom, will you do it for us? (laughs) And so Mom asks. When you read Mark's account, Mom's not there. So again, Matthew's the one adding this little detail, and it's, I don't think, overly clear as to what she's doing there because the reason I bring this up, as you keep reading, Mom fades out of the background, and Jesus talks in plural to you, meaning the disciples. And then it's clear, as you keep reading as well, that the ten other disciples that hear that Mom and James and John are asking to sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus, they're indignant. Did you see that in our text? It says here in verse 23, he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Don't let the other ten disciples off the hook as if they were like, yeah, that's not the way up. 
More commentators seem to suggest that the best way to read their anger and their frustration with the other disciples is not that they're like, yeah, that's bad. Don't do that. Remember, the way is the cross. The disciples repeatedly show that they don't get it. They don't understand this is the way. And so the 10, as they see Peter, as they see James and John looking for like that first spot, that close proximity to the throne or around the table, however the image works, at the right hand or left hand of Jesus, whether he's at the head of the table and he's got his most honored people at his right or his left, that's one way to view it, and it fits well with the cup imagery, or the idea of him sitting on his throne and at his right and at his left are his highest officers or officials in his kingdom. Either way you look at, that's what they're asking for. And the other ten are like, oh no, they're beating us to the punch. We want that spot. They're indignant because they're afraid they might lose those spots. If you just roll back the film and do a little rewind in Matthew's gospel, you get to chapter 16. It's the very first time Jesus references that he's going to die. Just like he did here. He says he's going to die. And then Peter's like, I'm up for following you. I'll do whatever it takes. And the very next sentence, Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. Like, it doesn't go well for the disciples to hear about Jesus dying and then be like, oh yeah, we get it now. They're not getting it. So are you. Are you understanding that in God's kingdom, the way to ascend up is to suffer. It's to die. The way for you to ascend higher heights of your Christian faith is to slowly die to your sinful self and all of those fleshly desires. You got to go down. Humble yourself. Get on your knees. This is the way up in God's kingdom. It is to drink a cup, as Jesus says. They ask, can we sit at your right and your left? And Jesus answers in verse 22, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said, yes, we can. They don't know what they're saying. They don't understand what the cup is. Eddie read for us earlier in Isaiah chapter 51, the cup is a common image of, of the Old Testament prophets for the wrath and the judgment of God. In another Old Testament passage, it's Jeremiah chapter 25, if you want to jot that down and read it later. The cup is the pouring out of God's wrath and it's getting people just like as a crazed stupor and drunk, like the, the wine of this cup or in Revelation, these bowls of God's wrath, that they're going to just be a mess. And so it is with Jesus taking the cup of God's wrath and he's going to drink it himself. He said, if you want to sit at my banquet at my right hand and at my left, then you've got to share in the cup that I drink. And then he tells them, in fact, you will. And what do we know about James? From tradition, not from the Bible, but from tradition, James was martyred and killed for his following Jesus. What do we know about John? John was deserted onto an island, prisoned, 
and left alone to die on an island called Patmos. They drank the cup because the way up, the way to ascend into the heights of God is down. If you'd like to make it to the right hand or the left, then you must go low. I love this phrase here by Jesus. He says, not so with you. It's in verse 26. It shall not be so among you. In verse 25, there's this contrast between two kinds of kingdoms. In God's kingdom, it is not going to be like the Gentiles, or you can just use that word, worldly kingdoms. The rest of the world is a certain way, aren't they? And what's their kingdoms like? Well, Jesus says they lord it over. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over, and the great ones, the great mighty rulers exercise authority over. They do not come under, they rule over. Tyrannical, powerful, using their money and their strength and their military. Jesus says that's the way of the world. The way of God's kingdom is under. It's down. Do you see the contrast between two kingdoms? And Jesus lays it out quite clearly that it should not be so if you are going to follow Jesus. You could be really close to Jesus and not get it and still be thinking, I'm going to make my way up in the Jesus kingdom. Think about it. Think about the way we talk in church, the way you think. I hear Christians say stuff all the time about, well, Phil, because you're a pastor and you're up on the stage and you're speaking in front of all of these people, you're probably going to get more rewards in heaven than I am. That's worldly thinking. Being up on a stage and being a pastor should be, I'm low, I'm a servant if I'm doing my job well. But here's what we've done. We've taken Christianity and we've Americanized it. We've caught an American version of Christianity. And so we look at pastors up on a stage and we think, ooh, they're special. They're powerful. They can talk well and they look nice and they look like they've got it all together. And we like those guys. Rubbish with that. Not so with Embassy Church. How about that? How about not so among us, among you? Let us not Christianize or Americanize our Christianity. Let us realize that there is a way of the world and then there is a way in Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus says that there should be nothing about God's ways being intermixed with the world's ways. So this should have massive implications for the way we think about what makes for a successful church. Well, it's probably not the ones that you know about. It's probably not the ones that are big. They could be big, or they could be really small. Who's probably the most successful Christians? The ones that you have no idea who they are because they don't even know what their right hand versus their left hand is doing as they give themselves for the kingdom. Is the church today more like the world or is it embodying the message and the spirit of Jesus Christ, caring for the weak, helping the poor, serving little children? Do we care about these things in the way that we spend our time, our money, and our energy, and do we value them? Is it not just like, well, we got to do that? 
That's where it's at. We keep reading Matthew's gospel. Jesus is going to say, when you do those things, you are doing them to me. You're serving Jesus himself when we serve those who the rest of the world overlooks and says they're not important, they're not successful. So this should help us as a church to be inclusive to all kinds of people, but exclusive in the sense that we should be a church that's about this way and not any other way. An inclusive exclusivity. I like that. We're inclusive because we're accepting and loving and hoping that no matter who you are, we would want to be a church that's for you and serve you. We want to get down low to help you know Jesus. Inclusive to all. Exclusive because there's a way. There's a way that we do this Jesus thing. There's a way to be the kingdom of God here on earth. And it's not like the rest of the world's ways. Therefore, there has to be a stance of standing for our convictions and knowing what God has said is true, and we're going to do things His way. And His way is down. That's our third point. It's our third part of the message. The way up in God's kingdom is down. This is what Jesus says in verse 26. It shall not be so among you, not lording over But serving under whoever would be great must be a servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. To be a servant is to be down. Here's the people pyramid. So you can kind of see what it looks like to be a servant in the Greco-Roman society that Jesus is living in when he's using these words and phrases, servant, diakonos, and then doulos for slave. And see that last bottom line, slaves. In the Roman society, you had the father who was like the patriarch of a family, and he would have been wealthy. There's wealthy landowners that had farms or property, and they were the fathers. Notice on here, there's, this is just the Greco-Roman world. This is, this is the way of the world. The way of the world is there's fathers, there's no mothers. The women get no respect, and I've made that point several times, but here's a good illustration of that. Where's the moms? Forgotten. Where's the wives? Oh, we don't care, we're just going to divorce them anyway. Go back a few weeks in our sermons and how we just kind of flippantly divorce wives whenever. That's because that's the spirit of the world. Fathers, and then there's sons and daughters. They're next underneath. And then there's clients and freedmen. Clients are the people that would be like business workers or associates. And this would mean you have some sort of upward mobility and respect in society, but you're basically like, you know, an employee of the master. Freedmen are the people who used to be slaves, but then they paid their debt, and so they're no longer slaves, and they're like an up-rung higher. Slaves, that's who Jesus is talking about. This is the layers of height, of people, pyramid, classes of society. This is what it was like. And he says, if you're going to be great, be a, a doulos. Be a slave. Be the lowest on the pyramid. Doesn't Jesus illustrate this quite well when he bends down and he gets low and he washes feet? This is what it looks like. He says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served. 
I am not the kind of king who is ascending up the throne and using my giant sword and my magic powers and saying, bah, Roman government, you're dead. I'm going to defeat you. And then I'm going to sit on a throne and have everybody feed me and serve me. And I've got all the wealth of the land. That's not what Jesus' kingdom is like. He's come to serve. The very act of him being alive as a human is an act of service. We read in Philippians chapter 2. He became a human as a servant. And he humbled himself even to the point of death. Even death on a cross. The cross was the most humiliating form of death. It is the most belittling and lowering. It raises you up so that you hang naked for hours until you suffocate because you can't hold yourself up anymore. And above each person hanging on the cross would be a sign of who they were and mocking them. And above Jesus was Hail, King of the Jews. Everybody knew what a cross was. The Romans used them repeatedly. Everybody knew when Jesus predicted that this was his way of going up, this was no way to go up. This was the lowest way down. And Jesus says that this way down is a way of serving and giving his life as a ransom. Ransom is an odd word. It's not used anywhere else in the Bible in terms of the New Testament. And a lot of times Christians have caught themselves up by this word to say ransom. Oh, so like Satan has everybody and then Jesus got to like buy them from Satan. That's not the picture. The word ransom is just simply a price paid to secure a release, normally captive or a slave. It just means to release someone from slavery. So here's the paradox. Jesus says the way in God's kingdom to go up is to go down as a slave. Because all of you are enslaved to sin. All of you are enslaved to the thoughts and the patterns and the ways of this world. You have absorbed so many of them and you're enslaved to them. But Jesus has come to ransom you, to rescue you, to take you free from that slavery and give you a better slavery. Slavery to God. Slavery to the only master who doesn't abuse and oppress his servants. And this, my friends, is not just a way down. It is a way up. By making ourselves servants and slaves of Christ, we are ascending up into the very throne of God at his right hand and being united to him and becoming like him. So if you'd like to go up and ascend in your Christian life, realize it's going to force you to go down. And it happens through our daily death. And for some of us, a real death. I like the language that Matthew points out here in this conversation because he picks it up later. He says that the mom asked for James and John to sit at the right hand and the left. Do you know when the next time that phrase is used? Sit at my right hand and my left. It's used in Matthew chapter 27 verse 38. It describes those crucified with Jesus on his right and on his left. I think what Matthew wants to do is help you see, oh, you want to be on the right and the left? 
then be willing to carry your cross. Be willing to die. Be willing to drink the cup of God's wrath down to its very dregs. The dregs is the like minerals. It's like if you were having tea and your tea bag broke and there was all the tea stuck on the bottom and you're drinking and sipping and then eventually you get and there's just the loose tea leaves on the bottom. Drink even the tea leaves. Drink the full weight of God's wrath. Friends, that's what we deserve, but by Jesus paying the price and taking on our ransom, he drank the full cup of God's wrath down to its very dregs, emptied it out, turned that cup over, and said, it is finished. So when you and I, we take on the sufferings of Christ, it is not because we deserve that suffering and we're paying for our sin. It's because Jesus paid for all that sin for us. That's what it says. Gave his life as a ransom for many. And almost every commentator I read said, for many is most likely a reference, not to, for any of you theologians, limited atonement or something like that, but rather it's a reference to Isaiah chapter 53 where the repeated phrase of the suffering servant gives his life for the many. The one for the many. That's what we have here in this story and in this text. Why did Jesus' death accomplish that? Do you ever wonder that? Do you ever ask the question, now, how did some guy's death 2,000 years ago have some sort of like help to me now? Does that make any sense? Should we sing songs and praise God through Jesus? Like praise Jesus that he died on a cross because he died on a cross? A lot of people died on crosses. Why are we praising Jesus? How does that have any benefit to you or to me? If I go over to a bridge and I jump off the bridge and I drown and say, hey guys, I want to show you how much I love you, Embassy Church. I'm going to go over, I'm going to jump off the bridge, and then I drown and die. Is any of you going to be like, "Woo! he's really great. Let's set up a memorial for Pastor Phil, the lover of Embassy Church. No one's going to do that. It doesn't mean anything if you just die. But if you died to rescue someone, well, that might be something great. Arland D. Williams. On January 13th, 1982, just a normal banker, hanging out in the D.C. area, wanted to go to Florida, and he wanted to get warm. It was frigid. It was like blizzard in D.C. And I lived in D.C., and they don't know how to handle snow. This is just like, this is fact. They do not know how to handle an inch or two of snow. They shut down the whole city. Well, this was like literal blizzard. It was a bad one, and the Potomac River was frozen over. Ice everywhere, thick ice. It's a terrible, cold, snowy time. Arlen D. Williams was sitting on an airplane. Air Florida Flight 90, heading to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, with 70 other passengers and stewardess and pilots. The plane is getting de-iced. They're trying to fly. The airport was shut down earlier in the day. They finally get it de-iced, but then there's this really long line because all of a sudden the airport opened and now you've got a whole bunch of planes that are trying to get off at once. And as it's on the runway, it ends up getting like iced up again. 
And what the captains should have done is gone back to the airport and de-iced again. But they didn't. Instead, they tried to just scooch up behind the plane in front of them and have the blast of their engines to kind of melt off the ice from their wings. And it kind of worked, but they didn't realize is that what they could see with their eyes is that the ice slid off to the back and it put a ton of weight on the back part of the wing. And so they thought they were safe when really they were in for a terrible, terrible disaster. They started trying to fly, and they could not get up enough altitude. They were on the runway much longer than they normally should have been, and they finally got up, but as they went up, they had this crazy move up and then down, and eventually they headed right toward the 14th Street Bridge, and they hit it, and they killed four people on the bridge that were driving during rush hour traffic. The plane plunged down into the water. Rescue efforts were having a very difficult time getting there because it's rush hour traffic in D.C., which, by the way, if you've ever been downtown Chicago, D.C.'s pretty bad too. So now paramedics, rescue fighters can't get there. Plus, they can't swim out. It is frozen. It's really, really cold. Seventy of the 76 people, or whatever the number was, six people survived the plane crash. And they're in the water. One of them is Arland D. Williams. And there they are in the frigid water, and finally a helicopter comes, and it tries to start saving the people through a rope that comes down. And there's a picture of it behind me. So there you go. You've got the frigid waters, plane that just crashed, and rescue efforts to try and save people and pull them out with a, a life vest you can, or a, a little life saver. You can see the next picture, a closer shot of people hanging on for their dear lives, the six remaining ones. Arlen D. Williams, a normal average Joe banker. When the raft came down, he gave it to the person next to him, and they rescued that person off. And then the helicopter came back, and then he gave the next person the lifesaver and they rescued that person off. And this repeated itself five times until the helicopter came back and Arlen D. Williams had drowned. See, if you just jump off a bridge and say, I love you, Embassy Church, it doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't show love. It's not a rescue operation. But when you go down into the water and you stay down to serve and save other people, the world knows that's great. In fact, Jesus says that's the greatest. The greatest men and women in this room and in the world will be those who are willing to lay down their lives and are willing to go down into the waters, to drink the cup, to baptize themselves into the baptismal waters of death and be risen again with Christ and united with him. This is the way up in God's kingdom. Do you really get it? Do you really get that this is greatness and that all other aspirations must submit to this one ambition? 2020, new year. Got some goals, some ambitions, some aspirations, what sort of great things you might want to achieve? Not so with you. 
Hear those words of Jesus and align your life to the message of going down. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to give you thanks for Jesus' life because he gave it to rescue. He gave it to save. He did not just die to die. He died to save and rescue. He went down into the grave to pull us up out of the grave and resurrect us from the dead. We thank you for Christ. We thank you, God, for the good news of the gospel, that there is hope for every one of us, that this church is a church for anyone and everyone because, God, you're willing to go as far as you need to go and as down as you need to go to rescue and pull us up out of the pit and out of the depths of the mess and the sin that we have found ourselves in. So we praise you, God for Jesus. We praise you for this word. We praise you for this message and for its power. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day. I pray, God, we would see with new eyes this life-transforming, life-shaping truth, and we would live by it. God, we pray for the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit, that your Spirit will empower us to be servants and slaves, to be low and to be humble. And may we realize that this is, in one sense, no sacrifice at all because it leads to our exaltation. It leads to our lifting and our raising up higher than we've ever been before. So may we embrace this way. In Jesus' name, amen.